pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear you this morning as you speak to us through Psalm 81. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from all forms of idolatry, and we pray that you would prepare us to feast and to worship forever, and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 81. We'll be looking at Psalm 81, and as you turn there, I just want to draw your attention to the words, our feast day, at the end of verse 3 of Psalm 81. Uh, This is a psalm that is about, uh, it's a call to the feast, it's a call to worship the Lord, and then at at the feast, presumably, the Lord addresses his people. And uh, this is providential for us because feasts in ancient Israel were holiday times. They were a time when uh, people left their homes and three times a year, all men in Israel were to travel up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts of Passover and then booths, which is also referred to as tabernacles, and then also the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of, of Weeks. So we're in a holiday season and, and I I am convinced that this psalm speaks to what we need in this holiday season. Because for, for so many, Christmas is supposed to be a happy time, but it turns out to be a disappointing time. Even, even if we're not uh, dealing with the loss of loved ones or remembering Christmas's past when things were the way that we wanted them to be or wishing for Uh, things to be different, perhaps, than they are in our lives in various ways. Even if we're with friends and family. So, you know, Christmas is very hard for people who are alone. But even those who are with friends and family can deal with with the Christmas season seeming hollow. Things just are never quite what what we want them to be. We want them to be this time of of mutual love and, and rejoicing, and it just can seem so worldly and distracting and disappointing. So as we look at Psalm 81 this morning, the psalmist, if you look at the superscription, it says, to the choir master according to the Gittith of Asaph. This guy Asaph, as he speaks into the, the hearts of his contemporaries, his countrymen, ancient Israelites, he's going to tell them what we need at holiday time. So look at what he says here. In verse 1, sing aloud to God our strength. You see what he's doing there? He's he's going to reference the feast that's, that's being celebrated, and he's calling his people to fix their hearts on the Lord and to sing to the Lord. That is what will make our Christmas what we want it to be. Look at what he goes on to say. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. These are commands and these are calls to praise. He's calling people to sing to God and to shout for joy to the God of Jacob. He continues in verse 2. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. So what he's saying to people is, 
What will join us together? What will unite our hearts? What will create the community that we long for is for us to be united in a common cause. And that common community-building cause is the praise of the Lord. That's what will create unity. That's what will cause Christmas to be what we want it to be. If we devote our hearts in this season to praising the Lord. And so I would urge you, if you're, if you're regular here, if you're a member at Kenwood Baptist Church, I would urge you not to miss Wednesday night. The, the, our Advent service every year is a fantastic time of worship and praise. I would urge you to, to build the Christmas Eve service into your schedule. You will be happiest when you are praising the Lord. And that praise will be best when you are joining your hearts with others of like mind, like commitments, like worldview. And, and we're all together united in this celebration of God's goodness to us. That will cure the Christmas blues. That's what we need. And this is what Asaph is recommending to his contemporaries at, at the time of the feast. Now, as, as we continue through this psalm, I, I want to draw your attention to the way that Asaph has, has uh, in literary terms, structured what he's saying. So in verses 1 through 3, you'll notice that, that all of the, the main verbs, all the verbs there, they're all commands, aren't they? Sing, shout, raise a song, sound the tambourine, blow the trumpet. So it's just this string of commands where he wants people to join their hearts in praise. Now what he's going to do next in verses five, 4 and 5 is start giving reasons for those commands. He's going to tell you why you should do that. And then... Uh, it changes in verse 6. So in verses 4 and 5, you get the reasons for uh, the commands to praise, the call to praise. And then in verse 6, the Lord begins to speak. And the Lord speaks through the rest of the psalm. So this is a really interesting thing that happens in this psalm. And, and now think about what this implies. You've got a human author, this guy named Asaph, who is giving to you the words of God. The Bible is claiming that God is speaking. And so God himself is going to speak from verses 6 through 16. And what the Lord says is, is very interesting. Um, in verses 6 and 7, he talks about what he's done for his people, the way that he's delivered them in the past uh, at the exodus from Egypt, and, and he provided for them in the wilderness. And then look at verse 8, where he says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel. And then look down at verse 11. My people did not listen. That's a hearing word. My people listen. And then a reference to Israel there in verse 11. And then in verse 13, oh, that my people would listen. Again, my people listen. And then Israel. So, so those three terms are kind of structuring the Lord's remarks for us. My people, Israel, and listen or hear, that's telling us where the breaks in, thoughts, in thought are. And so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll follow this sort of structure of thought as we continue um, through the psalm. But, but I need to say one more thing, and that's the last two verses, verses 15 and 16, which break the pattern. 
where it's not the Lord speaking of what he has done or what he would do. It's him describing enemies and then how they're going to perish and then how he's going to provide for his people in verses 15 and 16. So, So the psalm has a very clear structure and I would suggest that uh, that there's a, a sort of ring composition to this psalm where the first three verses match the last two. And, and we'll pursue that as we, as we go through. Um, verses 4 and 5 tell us why we should praise. Look at verse 4. Asaph says, For it is a statute for Israel. Now he's just caused people to, to, to blow the trumpet at the new moon at the full moon, on our feast day. And then he says, for it is a statute for Israel. He's talking about the way that the Lord instituted these feasts. And if you go back and you you read the Pentateuch, what you find is that at the exodus from Egypt, the Lord said, he used this very word, he said, it is a statute for you that you will celebrate what the Lord has done for you at the exodus every year. It's a statute for you. And, and so this is what Asaph is talking about. He's talking about the Exodus. And then also, as you go through Leviticus, there are uh, various moments uh, when trumpets are to be blown. Uh, but there's only a few places where this word shofar is used. So um, I, I'm just going to tell you about those, a couple of those places. One of them is at Mount Sinai, and that's going to be relevant for what we're about to see in this psalm. And another place where the shofar is blown, the the word that's translated trumpet there in verse 3, another place where the shofar is blown is is at the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee is is interesting. Randall is here. He's doing a lot of study on the year of of Jubilee. Uh, what's, What's going on at the year of Jubilee is there's this proclamation of liberty for the captives. So uh, people that are in bondage are released. And then every, everyone returns to their property. Now think about those two things. You're released from captivity and you return to your property. I think that's really similar to the, what happens at the exodus and the conquest of the land, isn't it? The, the Israelites are released from captivity in Egypt and then they go through the wilderness and they, once they conquer the land, they inherit their, their piece of property. And so I would suggest to you that the year of Jubilee, the celebration of the Jubilee, is like reenacting the exodus and the conquest of the land. So so all of this is relevant for understanding this psalm because what Asaph is doing is addressing how Israel ought to think about praising the Lord for what he's done for them. It's a statute for Israel, he says in verse 4, a rule of the God of Jacob. Notice how in verse 1 he had referred to the God of Jacob. He does that again here in verse 4. And then he says in verse 5, He made it a decree in Joseph. Uh, Joseph uh, being one of the sons of Jacob. So it's another way of referring to the people of Israel. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. Okay, so he's clearly talking about the exodus from Egypt. And then at the end of verse 5, there's this this uh, enigmatic statement where he says, I hear a language I had not known. That's how the ESV renders it. Uh, I think the NIV is, is really helpful here. They translate this, I heard an unknown voice say. Because I think what's happening there at the end of verse 5 is Asaph is setting up the speech of the Lord which follows in verses 6 through 16. 
Okay, so he's called people to praise in verses 1 through 3. And then he said uh, why they should praise in verses 4 and 5, because the Lord made the celebration of God's mighty deeds at the Exodus a statute when he went out over the land of Egypt. And now here the Lord speaks, beginning in verse 6. And what the Lord is going to do is remind Israel of what he's done for them. He says in verse 6, I relieved your, your shoulder of the burden, your hands were freed from the basket. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, oh great, I need to lift my heart in praise this Christmas season. What reason do I have to praise the Lord? Things aren't the way that I want them to be. I would urge you to hear the Lord say to you what he has done for you. I gave you life in this fabulous world. I sent my son to pay the penalty for your sin. I opened your eyes. I opened your ears that you could hear this good news. I've surrounded you with people that love you. What, I think a better question than what has the Lord done for me that I should praise him is what has the Lord not done for me, right? We have so much for which we should give thanks. And, and the Lord is rehearsing for Israel what he did for them. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. It's reminiscent of those chapters in Exodus uh, 1 and 2 of how the, the Egyptians made the burdens of the Israelites more heavy because Moses had come and said, uh, let my people go, and, and, and they were multiplying. And so the more they multiplied, uh, the more the Egyptians laid burdens on them. And the Lord says, I, I broke all, those, all that bondage. Then he says in verse 7, in distress... You called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Say la. Now let's think about the order of these statements here because it, it, it's really interesting what happens. In verse 6, the Lord says, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. And if we think about the, the flow of events in the book of, of Exodus... That happens around chapters 12 through 14, where the Passover takes place. That's when Israel is liberated. And then he goes back in verse 7. He says, in distress you called. That's narrated for us all the way back in Exodus chapter 2, where the Israelites cried out to the Lord. There's this beautiful statement. I love this statement in Exodus 2 so much I have to read it to you. It says, during those many days, Exodus 2, 23 through 25, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Knew what? Well, I think what he's saying is the Lord knew the pain of his people. The, the Lord knew the longings of their hearts. And the Lord entered into what his people were feeling. So, but the point I'm driving at here, I just got distracted by that glorious passage. The Bible is so wonderful. The point I'm driving at here is that the psalmist is not going in order, is he? He says, I, I, I relieved your shoulder from the burden. And then he says, I answered you when he cried out. When you cried out, right? So he, he goes to the Exodus and then he goes back to the prayer that prompted him to go into action in the Exodus. 
He's going to keep doing this kind of ah-chronological summary uh, description of what he's done for them as we, as we go through. And then he says, in the middle of verse 7, I answered you in the secret place of thunder. And in view of what we're about to read, I think that thunder has to be a reference to what Aaron read earlier in the service. It has to be a reference to the thunder that the people of Israel heard when they got out to Mount Sinai. And, and there was thick darkness, and there were heavy clouds, and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai in flame. And then out of the midst of the fire, God spoke to his people. Um, Derek, Derek Kidner has this great phrase as he describes this incident. He, he describes the mountain shrouded in smoke and terrible with the voice of God. That's, that's, a, that's, that's good stuff right there. Um, so, so they come to Mount Sinai, and the Lord says to them, I answered you in the secret place of thunder. So I, I heard your prayer. I liberated you from bondage in Egypt. I spoke to you at Mount Sinai. And then he says in verse 7, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. This is interesting too because uh, they come to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. They had come to the waters of Meribah in Exodus 17. And then they come back to the waters of Meribah in Exodus chapter 20. I'm, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 20. So there are these two incidents where the people complain, and in the first incident, Exodus 17, Moses strikes the rock, and the Lord provides water from the rock. The second incident, Moses is supposed to speak to the rock over in Numbers 20, and he strikes it, and he gets in trouble for that. But again, the Lord provides water from the rock. And, and, and they're both, they both take place at this place called Meribah. Uh, that's a way, referring to Meribah, is a way for the psalmist to allude to the way that God provided for his people with manna from heaven and water from the rock the whole time of their wilderness journey. So the psalmist has accomplished a very fast summary of the way the Lord answered his people's prayers, the way that he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and the way that he brought them safely through the wilderness, providing water for them all the way. It's, it's a very quick summary of what all that God did for them there in verses 6 and 7. And then we come to this next section of the Lord's speech where he says, Hear. O oh, my people, while I admonish you. O oh, Israel, if you would but listen to me. And I would invite you to you know, put up your Bible antennae and think to yourself, where do I hear the Lord say, or a biblical author say, hear, and then let's skip to the words, O oh, Israel. And that's a dead giveaway, isn't it? That's Deuteronomy 6.4 that the psalmist is alluding to, isn't it? Hear, O oh, Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. He's the only living and true God. This is the way the Lord is talking to his people now. I think, I think the Lord through Asaph means for his people to think of the Shema. And then he says in verse 9, there shall be no strange God among you. And this is Exodus 20 again, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. And then he continues there in verse 9. You shall not bow down to a foreign god. And that just continues in Exodus 20, doesn't it? No other gods before me. You shall make no graven images, and you shall not bow down to them. So it's like Asaph is just working his way through, but again, he's going to skip back to something that came before. Look at verse 10. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Those are the first words the Lord spoke to Israel from Mount Sinai. He says to them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay, so there's this, this sort of reminder, isn't there, of the first and greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then that entails no other gods before me, no bowing to foreign gods, because of who the Lord is there in verse 10. I am Yahweh your God. I am the one who has delivered you. These statements here in verses 8 through 10, they are at the center of Psalm 81. And what the Lord is saying is that his identity and his actions on behalf of his people prohibit idolatry. They prohibit, they, they should keep his people from looking to other gods. What he has done for them and who he is should result in them worshiping him alone. And, and the Lord is clearly indicting Israel, isn't he? Look, look back at verse 8. If you would but listen to me, which indicates they're not listening to him. The Lord is not pleased with a nation that would show up for the feasts as they cherish in their hearts strange gods, as they bow down on other occasions to foreign gods. That does not please the Lord. He desires an exclusive relationship with his people. Uh, this is not unfair of the Lord. It, it, it's not... It's not somehow restrictive of God. It's not that he's trying to keep good things from Israel. He's trying to keep Israel from enslaving masters and their perverting practices. That's the way we need to think about God's commandments. God's commandments and prohibitions are not saying to you, you can't have things that are going to be really pleasant for you, that are going to make your life really good. No, God's commandments and prohibitions are saying to you, that will trap you, that will ruin you, that will kill you. And it's, it's not as though, um, you know, our culture, our, our culture wants us to believe this lie that, that we're free. That as long as we don't hurt somebody else, we're free to do as we please. But that is just fundamentally not the way the world works. The world doesn't work that way. You can't have, there, there are so many things where you must make choices. For instance, if you want to be healthy, you can't eat whatever you want, right? If you want to be healthy, you can't lay around and never exercise, right? If in, so if you want health, you're going to have to put constraints on your, your sloth and on your eating habits. And, and in the same way, if you want the Lord, you're going to have to limit yourself. You're going to have to put constraints on what you do and, and what you look to. This is just the way, this is reality. And, and while we're here thinking about this, 
Um, I would, I would encourage you to think it in, in terms, think, think along the lines of the analogy of human marriage. And um, we're all disappointed, aren't we, when we hear about a marriage being in trouble or a marriage failing. It's, it's disappointing. It's devastating even. It's, we, we, we see it happen and we think that's not the way it's supposed to be. And the flip side of that is when we see a good marriage, when we see two people who love each other, they've been together forever, and they're just still crazy about each other, we think, that's beautiful. That's glorious. And I would say to you, behold the glory of monogamy. Monogamy, I mean, one man, one woman, forever, permanent, exclusive marriage, that's awesome. And then transpose that into your spiritual life. If you can have exclusive devotion to Yahweh, there will be a, a beauty and a glory to your faithfulness to the Lord. That's what God wants from his people. And he's saying to them, you can't have me and these other lovers. It's not wrong of the Lord to warn his people not to worship cosmic versions of Hitler which is what these false gods are. Worse, right? It's not wrong of God to say, don't drink the poison that they're trying to put into your mind, right? This is good of God to say, no other gods before me. Don't bow down to graven images. He's showing us the way to life. And the last statement of verse 10 just reinforces this. And I think he's probably, uh, Asaph probably has in, in mind the manna from heaven as he says, Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. God is saying to us here, do you have needs? Do you have desires? Come to me. It reminds me of what the Lord said through Nathan to David. You remember this? Back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan goes to indict uh, David for his sin with Bathsheba, for the murder of Uriah. And the Lord goes through all the things that he's given to David. He, he says to him in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 12, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And then he says this, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. The Lord is saying there is no limit to what I can do for you. Open your mouth wide. I will fill it. The problem is not that the Lord is not satisfying. The problem is that we are perverse. The problem is that we don't go to him when we long for satisfaction. We look to these other things. And then we get entrapped and enslaved by these wicked masters. And we find ourselves addicted and what, what D.A. Carson said about pornography is true about any addiction. You worship your way into that thing, and you're going to have to worship your way out of it. The, the only cure for whatever addiction you're facing, for whatever challenge you're dealing with, is what Psalm 81 calls you to. You're going to have to devote yourself to the praise of the Lord. And if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer, this is open for you. There is, there, is, there is a God who is saying to you, open your mouth wide, I will fill it. He, he's saying to you, try me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Don't you want this? Don't you want a God who is worthy of your praise? A God who will respond to your cries for help? A God who will break all the chains that bind you? A God who will provide for your every need as you make your pilgrimage through this wilderness? And then a God who will show you the way to life. I'm your God. Don't worship others. Be devoted to me. Israel would have none of it. Look at verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. They weren't willing. They weren't weren't assenting to the Lord. They didn't acquiesce to his wishes. And then there's this terrifying statement in verse 12 where the Lord says, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. You don't want the way to life. You don't want the path to joy. It's like the Lord says, finally, when he's had enough, have it your way. Follow your own counsels. This should be terrifying. You don't want the Lord to respond to you this way. This is why we should flee temptation. This is part of the reason we should flee. Lots of good reasons to flee temptations. This is part of it. You want to flee temptation because you don't want the Lord to do what Romans 1 describes and give you over to your perverse desires. Now, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, uh, verses 13 and 14, the Lord speaks to the blessings of the covenant. So let me just, let me just uh, uh, talk to you for a second about the, the structure of this psalm. Right in the middle, verses 8 through 10, you have this sort of uh, re- restatement of the Shema and the, 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 the first two commandments and, and uh, that restatement in verse 10 of what the Lord said at Sinai. And then in verses 6 and 7, you have a reminder of what God did for Israel at the Exodus, and that's matched by verses 11 and 12. So, so if, you can, if you can picture in your mind verses 8 through 10 in the middle, 6 and 7 are about the Exodus, 11 and 12, this is about Israel's rebellion and disobedience and God finally giving them over to judgment. Um, uh, verses 4 and 5 are about what the Lord uh, decreed for Israel, the way that he, he instituted this statute that they should commemorate the feast so that they would remember who he is and what he's done for them. And that's matched by verses 13 and 14 where the Lord says, it's, it's like the Lord is saying this, what I want for you are the blessings of the covenant that I've made for you. Look at verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Notice how verse 12, they followed their own counsels, but what the Lord wants is for them to walk in his ways. And then he says in verse 14, I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. If you would obey, the Lord is saying, I would give you the blessings of the covenant. I would do everything that you want for you. Your enemies would quickly be humbled. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would not be bringing my hand against you in judgment. I would be turning my hand against your enemies. So he's offering to Israel the, the, the blessings of the covenant there. Now think about, think about what this says, right? He said in verses 11 and 12, they wouldn't listen to me, so I gave them over. But he still wants them to obey, doesn't he? He's not giving up. It's not like, 
Oh, I gave those people over. I'm done with them. I'm done with people. I'm done with Israel. No, it's I gave them over, but oh, that they would walk in my ways. There, there's, a, there's an implication here that there remains future hope for the people of God, even though judgment has, is, 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 has fallen in this case. And then in verses 15 and 16, we get a statement that summarizes what the feasts commemorate. Uh, the feasts, think about the feast of the Passover. What would it commemorate? Well, it would commemorate the defeat of Egypt and the deliverance of Israel, wouldn't it? Uh, think about the feast of, of tabernacles. What would it commemorate? It would commemorate the way the Lord sheltered Israel in those tabernacles in the wilderness, the way he provided for them, and the way that he kept all the enemies that wanted to destroy them on the way from, from having their way. So he's defeating enemies and saving his people. Look at verse 15. Those who hate the Lord. This is if Israel would listen to him and walk in his ways. Verse 15. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. This is a picture of the enemies being subdued, finally. You don't want to be there. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, if you continue in unrepentant rebellion against the God of the Bible, Psalm 81.15 is about you. Your fate will last forever, and we don't want that for you. We want you to turn. We want you to flee the wrath. We want you to be those described in verse 16. Verse 16, but he would feed you, God's people, with the finest of the wheat. Literally what this says is the fat of the wheat. He would give you the fat of the wheat. I mean, you know, wheat doesn't have fat, but it's a way of describing uh, the best of, of the wheat, the wheat that's, that's rich and full. This is what God is going to going to give to you. Open your mouth wide. I will fill it. He will feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, he says, I would satisfy you. He's picking up here on Deuteronomy chapter 32, where in verse 13, he says, he suckled him with honey out of the rock. And then in verse 14, he says that he gave his people the very finest of the wheat. So, so those two statements in Deuteronomy 30, 32, 13, and 14 are informing Asaph here. And, and think about that last statement there in verse 16. With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. I think perhaps what Asaph is doing and following Moses in Deuteronomy 32 is picking up the way that the manna from heaven tasted like honey and then, and then combining it with uh, the water from the rock and you've got a land that they're entering that's flowing with milk and honey, right? So all of this imagery is being brought together in this po poetic reference to honey from the rock. And what the Lord is saying is, nobody has anything better than what I'm offering you. I'm offering you the best things you could find. And here's a, here's a biblical truth for you. The best things about life are free. But you've got to crucify your flesh to get them. The best things in life you can have for nothing. No, they don't cost you any money. But you're going to have to crucify your sinful desire. You're going to have to crucify your selfish impulses. You're going to have to lay down your life for other people to have the best things that God offers you. Israel's feasts celebrated the Lord's past, 
salvation of Israel. As we're seeing here in Psalm 81, Israel broke the covenant and they forfeited their access to God's blessings. And instead of enjoying his blessings, they incurred God's wrath. But that doesn't change God's desire to bless his people, does it? It's clear from this psalm that even though they're sinful, even though he's given them over, he wants to bless them. He wants them to obey. And those feasts, they not only point back to past salvation, they point forward to future instances of these exodus, wilderness, conquest patterns. And those future instances are fulfilled in the one who came to fulfill the feast, the one who came and died as a Passover lamb, the one who came and John 1.14 tabernacled among us. And that statement in, that, that John read earlier in Revelation 7, when it says he will shelter them with his presence, the word behind that is he will tabernacle over them with his presence. And then he's going to provide for them, isn't he? Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover. He's the one who tabernacled among us. He's, he's the one, think about tabernacles, right? The Lord's providing manna from heaven, water from the rock. What does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. And then he says, as we read in our call to worship, come to me. And, and out of your innermost being, out of his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the fulfillment of the manna from heaven, the fulfillment of the rock from which the water flows. And then think about the, the Feast of Pentecost, what happened on the day of Pentecost. Jesus gave the Spirit, didn't he? And I referenced the Jubilee earlier. Uh, it, it's, it's fascinating the way that um, Leviticus 25 speaks of this Jubilee. And then uh, Isaiah picks it up in Isaiah 27 he's, as he's talking about the end of all things. And he says there's going to be this great trumpet blast, this great blast of a shofar. And Paul when Paul references, this is a shofar, this is a ram's horn, I've got another prop. Can you believe this? <laughs> Paul, uh, when Paul says, he makes this reference to the trumpet call of God, the voice of the archangel. That's what he's talking about. And the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven, and he will gather his people to him. He will raise the dead, and we will reign with him forever. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause us to hear you. And Lord, cause us to believe. Lord, when you say to us, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Help us to trust you that what you give to us in the way of relationships, in the way of opportunities to work or places to live or whatever. Lord, cause us to trust you and keep us from becoming idolaters who, who take to ourselves foreign gods that we secretly bow down to in an effort to get some perverse version of one of your blessings. Lord, have your way in our hearts. Make us your people. Make us those who will be granted to clothe ourselves with fine linen, bright and clean, for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those invited to that feast.
Give us that blessing, we pray. We look to the power of your spirit, by your grace, through our faith in the Lord Jesus, for you to bring this about. Amen.